So apparently, you need non-practice. Welcome to this first in a series of audio casts in which you will get to hear an audio version of blog posts from the Imperfect Buddha podcast. We'll see what you make of these. Uh, Some people find it preferable to reading the actual text. And either way, since I'm really busy as always and don't have time to record interviews in this period, I thought I might as well put out a bit of content in this form. So those that don't know, there began a new series of posts with complex world, complex practice. And out of that emerges a series on non-practice, which emerges from non-philosophy and non-Buddhism. There will also be a post or two on the other two topics mentioned in that complex piece, namely doubt and ecological thought. So look, I'm aware that some of this stuff can come across as abstract. I want to remind you all, I'm not an intellectual, I'm not an academic. I just seem to have a perverse attraction to these themes. And for some other odd reason, I seem to like thinking about them quite a lot. But thinking not as disembodied, abstract, theoretical posturing, but rather as a practice in itself, yeah? Uh, Some people still hold on to the rather silly myth that the object of a spiritual path or Buddhism or meditation is to end up with no thought. Well, as some have pointed out, that seems to represent, well, a lobotomized person. Although I'm pretty sure that there's something looking like thought going on even in their heads. Who knows what that would be, a highly symbolic visual experience for sure and a horrendous one. But there is something to be said about the relationship between physical practices, practices that involve the breath, standing, moving, and practices that involve looking at thought, thinking deeply, and contemplating ideas. That's another point worth making before we get into this one. Contemplation. Yeah, in some Buddhist traditions, this is appreciated, perceived of, and really integral to the meditation life. But contemplation all too often ends up being very, very specific set phrases produced by the traditional teacher. Contemplation has a history as old as our species, spanning all traditions and all practices. So it really shouldn't be confined to a few pet phrases produced by a Buddhist tradition. The whole point of contemplation is to engage deeply with ideas, thoughts, questions, to the point that they may actually destabilize the status quo, that they may actually open the way to some kind of deeper understanding or perception. That's really what we're after. And in a sense, that's what these posts are all about, aimed at and concerned with. You may find them useful. If you do, I'm happy. The first one, big claim, you need non-practice. Sales pitch, non-thought and non-practice constitute a set of antidotes to ideological entrapment and identity formation 
within the social and cultural apparatus of our age, and to the reactionary identities that make up the emotionally charged extremes of today's dominant identity groups, and is an ideal companion to the practice of coming to inhabit the consequences of anatman, especially when explored at the Great Feast. This piece mixes old and new insights in order to elaborate a more explicit understanding of how non-thought, i.e. non-contemplation, and non-practice can be a combined practice for working on the self, and in a way that fits well with explorations of anatman, no self, not self, and other takes on that theme. This resource engages with the challenge of the social formation of selfhood and acts to resist inculcation into the paradigms of identity that are available to us in the social spaces that we inhabit, from dharma halls to social media tribes, from politics to activism, from intellectual life to practice life, complex life, complex practice indeed. This piece is followed by a series of posts featuring insights, practice tips, and questions for the interested, shaped by my own meddling drawn from non-philosophy and non-Buddhism. This first and longest post is being recorded as an audio cast. Old Frank To approach Francois Laruelle's work on non-philosophy is to quickly find yourself in a world of new ideas, absurd linguistic demands, and complex manoeuvres intended to make non-philosophy a practice of itself. Laruelle is constantly striving to put his ideas into practice through his writing, and this can make it a rather odd sort of adventure to participate in. His persona and cultural products can appear very slippery as a consequence, and difficult to grasp. In a sense, Laruelle is challenging us to practice non-philosophy ourselves through his many works, and in so doing discover its liberational capacity and immensely creative potential. In a funny sort of way, his work is an elaborate koan. The form of the writing is the expression of the act it describes. Despite appearances, non-philosophy, or better what emerges from it, is less complicated than it may first appear, if we approach it as curious practitioners willing to take his ideas as invitations to enter specific kinds of practice spaces. Not of the sort you might get from a koan, but no less enigmatic or disruptive of our sense of who we are. Though not many of his proponents would likely consider it so explicitly to be a practice that can be harnessed towards the transformation of self, I will suggest otherwise throughout what follows. For those without PhDs or membership of radical thought groups in Paris, Berlin, Philadelphia or New York, non-philosophy may initially appear as an insurmountable challenge. Yet many of its ideas are intuitive and will resonate once lifted from the strange codex Laruelle employs to defend his thinking from philosophers and the circular 
sometimes insular nature of philosophy. For those who are philosophically trained, Laruelle may be dismissed as yet another French charlatan, producing intolerable prose, or a distraction from far better thought taking place somewhere else, or as a recycler of ideas already present in previous philosophers. And they may be right, but only in part. And as Vicky Pollard would say, yes but no but. For Buddhists, he may appear as a waste of time, yet another Western philosopher who spends his days in intellectual masturbation and whose ideas are of no use to us practical folks. That is one way to view him. In each case, however, to settle on such a reading would be to miss out on a remarkable opportunity that I have yet to find elsewhere. Laruelle provides a means for picking apart the mechanics of identification with worlds of knowledge and practice. Worlds that end up almost always, it seems, capturing subjectivity and harnessing it to their own ends, so that when inside freedom or justice are sought out through a given world of knowledge, say Buddhism or progressivism, the practices and outcomes that result struggle to become other than images of liberation, wisdom or equality, imagined ideals if you will. This results in practices of performance in which the fantasy replaces the actual radical potential held within the knowledge world it was drawn from, with the fantasy becoming a simulacrum, or in the realm of spirituality and religion, multiple holy simulacra, ready to be purchased on the market of salvation as cures for the human condition. My job here is not to convince critics that they are wrong or misguided about Laruelle's projects or should be practicing differently. I'm concerned primarily with those folks who seek a third way to dichotomies and side-taking and who feel something is deeply amiss in groups that demand conformity to modes of being that alienate the individual from their own capacity to think, feel and act for themselves. Additionally, my desire is to present non-thought and non-practice as fundamentally concerned with the topic central to practitioners such as Buddhists, philosophers and spiritual practitioners and even intelligent activists, namely that of human freedom, with particular attention to an aspect of freedom that has been neglected by these groups. The sort of freedom that is not an end in itself, but rather a practice that can be embodied or incarnated as an ongoing movement through the rich, complex social and cultural human-made world we all inhabit. It is a means for avoiding getting stuck in the way stations that are endless in a life dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge. I would argue that handled well, non-philosophy acts as an antidote to ideological entrapment more broadly. It doesn't eliminate it, or take us to some land where ideologies no longer reign, but rather provides a set of tools and principles, a style of thought that creates wiggle room to allow us to become far more creative thinkers, phenomenologically diverse, and liberate us from the allure of becoming Buddha zombies, activist mascots, parroting spiritualists, or whatever other identities are currently traded on the market of selves today.
Practice well, such thought provides a form of liberational practice that cannot be found so well articulated in Buddhism and only really echoes quietly in the potential of more radical philosophical, spiritual and religious thought elsewhere. Ultimately, non-philosophy as practice provides the means to allow the spiritual and religious to be reinvigorated with the potential that is inevitably lost when new practices solidify into ideological machines designed to produce subjects that adhere to highly predictable structures of thought, desire, feeling and being. This is the virus that inhabits traditions from practicing what they preach, from producing awakened beings, for example, or truly independent minds capable of acting on the world, or birthing genuinely innovative solutions to the endless problems our species faces. I recognize these are big claims, so I guess I'm going to have to try and illustrate how it all might look in practice. Shall we toddle on? Bastardization and improper reading. Some confessions to make. I'm not a Larouillian. I have read some of Francois's actual writing, primarily Dictionary of Non-Philosophy and a Summary of Non-Philosophy, and where I have read more substantially, it's often been works by writers on the man and his ideas. Considering that his dictionary could be seen as a user's manual, this is not necessarily a problem. Non-philosophy makes far more sense as a practice when you start using it on yourself, as opposed to a theoretical cul-de-sac for pondering complex theory in a disembodied realm of ideas. My first meeting with Laruel's work came through the non-Buddhism project that this site has invested much in and gained so much from, and this signals my rather practical take on Laruel's work. This links to my claim that it can be and ultimately is a practice that works directly on the self, specifically through the self's attempt to solidify identity and being through allegiance with worldviews and philosophical, religious or spiritual stances. Ultimately, the elaboration here is reflective of my own ongoing practice of non-thought and non-practice with this personal practice bent. I am trying to do what Frank did and must therefore think alongside the materials and practices that I've wrestled with. I will not show off the complex coinages that Laruel is infamous for, such as being in one or non-autopositional, <laughs> unless I can reconfigure the concept in my own words. For I repeat, I am not a Laruelian, and I'm not suggesting that you become one either. I have no desire to reproduce his convoluted prose or become a member of the club. In doing so, this will be an illustration of my own wrestle with the kinds of practices that this creative thought necessitates before it becomes genuinely useful, transformative and disruptive. In taking Laruelian thought as a practice, it inevitably leads to the transformation of the materials we hold sacred and believe to be self-sufficient and complete. 
and perhaps even self-evident. These materials include the many beliefs and ideas we hold about a tradition we are explicitly or implicitly part of, our general stance towards the world, our politics or lack thereof, our spiritual or religious path or lack thereof, and our sense of who we are, are not, or must be. In this sense, non-thought and practice does what many traditions and paths claim in offering a means to think about, engage with, and evaluate the world, but it does so with a dogged commitment to turning the solidification of self in line with those projects on its head. It seeks through its slippery forms of thought to deny us the joy and indulgence of certainty and a final goal. It brings alive the impossibility of taking a break from the world through inhabiting an unreal ideological life form. In this sense, non-practice and thought are driven by an anti-ideological push whilst denying being solidified into an anti-ideological practice. This ambiguity or seeming impossibility is merely a necessary condition for this thought to produce something new. Non-practice acts against universals. It denies the right of universal truth to establish the boundaries of existence for man. It subsequently denies that any tradition, philosophical, religious, scientific, political, has the right to do so either. In recognizing how this is an implicit tendency in all traditions, secular and spiritual, it built a set of ideational tools for navigating the framework that makes up the tendency. Some have claimed that non-thought is similar to middle-way thinking. This is a mistake both theoretically and practically. To practice the middle-way is often to embody aloofness. It concocts delusions of superiority hidden behind the mask of equanimity. Theoretically, it avoids disruption and transformation for a commitment to inhabiting the ground between established orders. It, therefore, contrary to many who claim otherwise, can end up becoming yet another iteration of identity formation on the sly. Reread the subheading of this section if that got you riled up. Non-thought is inherently disruptive. It is the unwelcome dinner guest that upsets, disturbs and breaks conventions, but brings vigor and transformative possibilities wherever it eats. It is a tilopian antagonist. Non-thought asks us to become uncomfortable and inhabit a far more varied terrain than the two pillars of meaning-making thrown up by dichotomies. A non-terrain that returns the human to the material world and asks him or her to give up seeking final goals and getting stuck in binaries of thought, feeling and identity. This includes such final ends as awakening, enlightenment, or even the end of suffering. Is this thus an affront to Buddhism? I would suggest it is a challenge instead to make what is spoken of real, to practice rather than imagine or idealize, and in so doing discover whether such possibilities are actually possible in this human life that you are currently living with its own tides and challenges conditions, 
and material circumstances? Or is it just a fantasy rooted in the forms of ignorance dominant at a given moment in human history and thus perhaps worth discarding? Rather than live within the components of a story in which the world is already made with conclusions drawn, protagonists assigned, non-practice says do it too and see what happens and do it within the company of the many and not the few and with the components that make this life unique in its configurations of connections. In this way, it is an invigoration of ideas, of vision, of possibility, and of practice itself. There is no final goal but the active creation of invigorated practices that can mutate and end up in multiple destinations. This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really. Housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper-middle-class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So, some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring, and guidance to those taking Well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism. Waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc, etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too. And it seems that other folks are too. Three options. Coaching. Buddhist style practice and engagement and the shamanic stuff that well a lot of people seem to be rather curious about to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need.
Why be disrupted, proposing a practice? Where to start? What would a beginning look like? Look, there are endless directions that could be taken next. That's the whole point of the thing. Within a background in teaching and coaching, like the one I have, I am driven to inform would-be adventurers of the dangers that lie ahead. The work here is not a universal solution to current problems or the next big thing. It's not even a replacement for whatever current practice you might have. It is also best suited to those with significant practice experience under their belts. Despite being formulated as a practice on the self here, it is not therapeutic or designed to increase well-being or make you a nicer, more patient person. Embarking on a tour of pet, myths, beliefs and attachments is a disruptive practice after all, and if taken seriously, uh, should not be undertaken lightly. Taking ideas and practices seriously is dangerous terrain. Adopting the practice of thinking along with, rather than from or to, is an odd sort of discipline that actually requires you to let go of the tendency to bring everything back to yourself. For those who are fragile, neurotic or unstable, disrupting those anchors that hold your inner or outer life together would likely be a terrible idea. This will also be true for some of those who may feel relatively stable in themselves. Look, Buddhism has within its resources and history endless stories of the dangers of practice. But within the therapeutic turn and nature of much modern-day Buddhism, these stories get played down, ignored, or turned into amusing tales or considered pre-modern myth-making. Death, constant change, a lack of a true, stable, forever you. Come on, these are extremely disruptive truths that are easier to approach superficially or within narratives which make them tolerable or even pleasant. Touch on their real-world consequences and you can find serious anxiety rear its head. Terror in spades, panic, and other dark treats we all tend to avoid. I argue that much that is called practice is actually a form of performance. I've written this before. It's the idea that the idea of the thing is entertained through elaborate rituals that make them far more palatable and never truly disruptive. We get to return to our day jobs, relationships and Netflix binging after a weekend retreat, meditation session, ceremony or talk having used practices for, well, general maintenance. Plus we have the commercialization of Buddhism's core insights into well-being tropes, bliss-making absorption into your inner self, suspension of thought. Look, these are not necessarily bad objectives, certainly not for fragile folks leading miserable lives, but one could argue that this is not exactly what was intended by the great Buddhist masters throughout history in their quest to understand the intrinsic nature of suffering. The commercialization of Buddhism and religion into spiritual practice is a sign of the incredible attachment our species has to transcendence. The first of the topics I will explore. Finally, anyone approaching Laruel's thought must tread carefully. The efforts of Laruel to think differently become a challenge that we must remain attentive to. Can we think originally ourselves? Can we practice with some trace of originality? 
can we accept the challenges that come from disruption to our inner status quo? The ease with which we slip back into parroting lazy forms of thought and emotion is ever-present, as is the act of practicing the idea of the thing rather than the thing. In practical terms, we must produce the act of non-philosophy without lazily copying or parroting the man's actions and form, as we should ideally be doing with Buddhism and its practices. Keep it fresh and real to the now that is the iteration of a human existence. If you survived all that, there's much more to come. And if this stuff excites you, you've got a great feast to look forward to.